Good morning, everyone. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, There's a painting that I like. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it's somewhat well-known. It's by a French painter named uh, Jules Alexis Mounier. It's from the late 1800s. And it's called The Catechism Lesson. I had it as the desktop background on my work computer for a while. (laughs) Um, It's painted in a very realistic style. And it shows an old priest teaching children their catechism. They're outside in a kind of uh, unkempt, uh, weedy garden. Uh, The priest is sitting in his chair. He's kind of hunched forward, leaning on his knees. His hands are folded in front of him. And there's a little scowl of uh, kind of patient concentration on his face. And in front of him, a boy, maybe about 10 or 11 years old, is standing up, saying his catechism. And behind him, behind the boy, uh, on a wooden bench, three other children are sitting. And what I like about them is they're, they're not exactly listening with rapt attention or with cherubic expressions on their faces. They look exactly like you would expect kids to look who are being made to sit still and say their catechism on a beautiful afternoon. Uh, One girl is kind of just staring off into space, very blank expression on her face. Uh, Obviously, her mind is wandering far away. Uh, One boy is actually picking at the weeds behind him, behind the bench. Another girl is looking down at a little book in her hands. I assume she is probably next, so she's doing a little uh, last-second cramming. It's a very humdrum scene, very routine. No one looks really enthralled. No one appears to be having any kind of great epiphany. I don't know anything about the artist uh, to say what he might have meant by this painting. I don't know whether he saw this scene as a a precious image of the faith being passed down to the next generation, whether he saw this priest as a, a faithful old saint, dutifully instructing these children in the ways of God, or whether he was just showing a very familiar and very human scene, maybe from his own memory, so that his focus wasn't really Christian faith at all, but uh, maybe he was himself remembering being in that setting. Maybe he was one of the little boys that he painted. Or maybe he was painting that priest from his own memory. So I don't know what this painter meant by it exactly. But I do love that painting. Because for me, it does show something very beautiful and very precious. The normal, everyday, uh, even humdrum task 
of teaching the next generation the Christian faith. And for me, it's tinged with a kind of tenderness, even almost a little twinge of pain. Because I know that children don't always carry on the faith that, uh, of their parents for all sorts of reasons. I can be honest and say part of my reaction to it is the fear I sometimes feel for my own children. I worry often about my own failures as a father. And I worry that my children will wander from the faith or be distracted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I worry that I won't have done enough, that I could always do a little more. Well, our psalm today, Psalm 78, is concerned with this very thing. We will recount to generations to come, it says in verse 4, the praiseworthy deeds and the power of the Lord and the wonderful works he has done. And in verse 6, that the generations to come might know and the children yet unborn, that they in their turn might tell it to their children so that they might put their trust in God and not forget uh, the deeds of God, but keep his commandments. This is a psalm written to teach the mighty acts of God. Uh, this is one of the longest psalms in the Psalter. The whole entire thing is 72 verses long. We were only given the first seven verses in our lectionary uh, this morning. But the rest of the psalm is going to do what these opening verses promise. It will recount for the benefit of the generations to come, as it says, the praiseworthy deeds and the power of the Lord. And we are told exactly why the psalmist is doing this in verse 7. So that they, the children, might put their trust in God and not forget the deeds of God, but keep his commandments. Actually, uh, this is one of those times when I'm going to take uh, issue with the lectionary a little bit. Because really, the sort of introduction to the psalm goes through verse 8, even though our lectionary lops it off at verse 7. And verse 8 adds an important layer of the purpose for this psalm. Verse 7 gives the positive purpose so that they might put their trust in the Lord. But verse 8 adds the negative. We must tell these things to our children, it says, so that they might not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is important because the story the psalm is going to tell will be the story of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. It's an interesting uh, tack for the psalmist to take. <laughs> Here he is telling really the story of the nation, passing it down to the next generation. And instead of valorizing Israel's great heroes or telling all the successes of the nation down through the ages, like any other uh, self-respecting nation would do, the psalmist is going to tell the story as the story of Israel's failures over and over again to remain faithful to God. 
the very identity of the nation is this, Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. And so the rest of the psalm itself will recount the history of Israel. In roughly its first half, it focuses on the unfaithfulness of the people in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. It remembers how God opened up the waters of the Red Sea to let them pass through and how he led them in the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It recalls how he split open the rock to give them water to drink. And how, even after all this, they tested him with their unbelief and their complaining. And so he gave them food. He rained down manna for them to eat. The psalm says very beautifully, so mortals ate the bread of heaven. He provided for them food enough. And later he gave them meat to eat too when he sent them flocks of quail. And still the psalm says, they did not stop their craving, though the food was still in their mouths. The first half of the psalm ends with a recounting of God's mercy to them in spite of their unbelief. But it says in verse 38, he was so merciful that he forgave their sins and did not destroy them. Many times he held back his anger and did not permit his wrath to be roused. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that goes forth and does not return. Israel's unfaithfulness, God's mercy and forgiveness. The second half of the psalm begins by recounting uh, God's mighty acts in saving the people from their captivity in Egypt, telling of the 10 plagues that God visited on the Egyptians, and then how God led the people to the Holy Land and drove out the wicked nations before them and gave each tribe their own place to live. But even so, it says, they forsook God and chased after idols and ignored the commandments he had given them. And the psalm says, God was angry with them and let them suffer at the hands of the Philistines to bring them to repentance. But then it says that God rose up again and defeated the Philistines and established a new king for his people, King David. David was God's instrument to defeat the Philistines uh, and now he is God's chosen king over the people. The psalm ends with these lines. He, God, brought David from following the ewes to be a shepherd over Jacob, his people, and over Israel, his inheritance. So David shepherded them with a faithful and true heart and guided them with the skillfulness of his hands. Uh, this psalm, we think, was probably written during David's reign or shortly after, since it ends with the story of, it ends the story of Israel's history there with David's reign. And also because Asaph, who this psalm is attributed to, was evidently a musician in David's court. So if that's true, 
this psalm doesn't know yet about the exile to come. Instead, it ends with the kingship of David, which it sees as evidence of God's kindness and grace to his people. Despite their unfaithfulness, God has given them a good king, a king who is also a shepherd and who will shepherd the people faithfully and skillfully. So yes, we know from our vantage point that the people of Israel will continue to sin and continue to chase after idols until finally God will let them be dragged off into exile. But we can also see this Psalm's ending with the kingship of David as a picture of another future shepherd king who will come from David's own line and who will save his people from their enemies once and for all and who will skillfully shepherd his people and establish a kingdom that will never end. The theme of this psalm, of teaching the next generation the ways of God, is a great theme throughout all the Bible. It goes right back to Abraham himself. God says to Abraham in Genesis, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. And later in Genesis, God says, I have chosen Abraham that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So this command to pass the faith on to future generations is baked in to God's covenant with Abraham. It's part of the covenant with Moses, too. God gives Moses his law, which expresses his own identity as a good and righteous God, and which calls his people to live holy lives. And then over and over throughout the law of Moses, God calls on his people to pass these things down to their children. Most memorably in Deuteronomy 6, where Moses tells the people, these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. But no sooner have we noticed this theme in scripture than we notice how Israel failed to do it again and again. Abraham's sins were passed down to his own son, Isaac, and then to Jacob, and to Jacob's sons too. Later, the very same generation that saw God's mighty acts in saving them from slavery in Egypt could not sustain that faith uh, themselves in the wilderness. And that generation's failure to trust God becomes the great example, the paradigm in scripture of faithlessness which later uh, biblical writers refer back to over and over again. The psalmist says in Psalm 95, harden not your hearts as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. The story of the judges is the story of the people continually chasing after idols so that God disciplines them 
and allows them to be oppressed by the nations around them so that they repent and return to him only for the next generation to chase after idols again. And the story of the kings of Israel is the same. I'm often uh, struck by this in Kings and Chronicles. Most of the kings are judged to be wicked kings by the writers of those books. The refrain repeated over and over, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But even the good ones, even the best kings, kings like David and Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah, have sons who again fall into sin and idolatry and all sorts of wickedness. And so we have two opposing patterns, both of which are illustrated by our psalm today. On one hand, we have God's command to teach the faith to the next generation. And on the other hand, we have the children of Israel's repeated failure to do exactly that. The New Testament takes up this theme. Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples. How? First, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And second, by teaching them to obey all that he has commanded them. First, baptize, then teach. That's the model for spiritual formation in the church. And it echoes the Old Testament command to keep on reciting the wondrous acts of God for the next generation. It's echoed too in Paul's command to maintain the traditions, even as I have delivered them to you. So where does all this leave us today? Like the children of Israel, we are commanded to diligently pass the faith on to the next generation. And yet it seems like left to ourselves, we human beings are much better at passing down our sins to our children than at passing down the faith. And we know, don't we, how hard this is and how much heartache can be involved in it. I remember when my own son, Aiden, was baptized right here at Redeemer. Aiden is our oldest child, and so Jenny and I were brand new parents. And as a first-time father, I felt the awesome responsibility that was being placed on us. Not just to keep this tiny guy alive, which seemed like enough of a responsibility at the time, <laughs> but to raise him in the faith. I felt overwhelmed by that task. And I still do sometimes. And I was suddenly aware of my own inadequacies and shortcomings in a way I had never been before. And that's why it meant so much to me to stand up in front of the church and to give Aiden back to God in his baptism. In baptism, God claimed Aiden as his own so that before Aiden is my child or Jenny's, he is first God's child, God's beloved son. And that makes all the difference. Psalm 78 is first and foremost, the story of God's faithfulness 
even in the face of his people's unfaithfulness. The psalmist wants them to remember all the foolish things their forebears had done so that the Lord's wonderful mercy might be made known. The psalm's focus is on the nature of God, whose character is always to have mercy. So if to catechize our children is to uh, teach them all of God's mighty acts, this psalm teaches us that the mightiest of all God's mighty acts is his mercy. As the psalmist says elsewhere, your mercy, O Lord, reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. How excellent is your mercy, O God. The children of men shall take refuge under the shadow of your wings. It is God's mercy that is the basis for our catechism. This psalm shows us that our children's faith is not created or sustained by our own faithfulness. Praise be to God. We can only declare God's mercy to them. We can only plant and water. It is always God who gives the growth. So we can teach our children the faith, not out of fear or out of guilt at our own failures and our own inadequacies, but in love and good hope, knowing that the faith we pass on to them is not ours to control or manipulate, but God's. And by the way, uh, yes, parents do have a special responsibility to teach their children the faith, but really this is the job of all the church, all of us together. The New Testament expands the family and redefines the family to include all the church. We are all each other's mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. That's why we have godparents in baptisms. And that's why in the baptism rite, we all promise together to raise these little ones in the faith. Whether you have children or not, or whether your children are grown up and moved on, you are part of this. Jenny and I are very grateful that our own kids have many spiritual mothers and fathers right here in this church. That is as it should be. I love the face of the old priest in that uh, Mounier's painting. A little haggard, but dutiful and patient. He's not seeing any visions. He's not hearing choirs of angels. He's just putting in the work. We're like that. We simply do the work. We plant the seeds and water them for God to do with as he will. But we do it in freedom and in good hope, knowing that this is God's work, not ours. And that when God's, worth, God's word goes forth from his mouth, it does not return empty, but always accomplishes that which he purposes and prospers in the thing for which he sent it. 
the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.